0: Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, let's
1: go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're yeah, the third person to suggested that uh, this week. You get that a lot, I would guess. I do get that a lot, yes. So you and I had a very interesting
0: conversation, which preempted. Today we are thinking about talking about your view of the end of the world and how it shapes your romantic life. But we're pre- <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do that later in the week. We are actually going to talk about hell, which... You did some theological reflection this weekend, and you had an observation that you shared with me that was the inspiration for this podcast.
1: Yeah, I was noticing that it seems that the doctrine of hell, and it's born out of late apocalyptic Judaism, that when you're a persecuted minority, like they were, uh, uh, the background of that in, in the canon is the book of Daniel. And like Donald Trump is, everyone's against him. Right. The, he, the, the party, the media, everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I really, I think about, when I think about uh, Antiochus Fourth massacring Jews, the next thing that comes to my mind is poor Donald Trump. Exactly. <laughs> well, you have hair like that. It can't be an easy life. No, it cannot. But uh, the first, you know, the New Testament uh, was born in the middle of that kind of understanding that the end was near, that uh, evil and evil people had gotten away with a lot. And that the day of the Lord was going to come when there would be a reckoning. And Christianity adopts that. Uh Jesus seems to think that. And certainly Paul, uh yeah, you know, we often talk about the uh you know the justification by faith passage in Romans, but immediately after that is the wrath of God is being revealed. So And Paul talks less hell than Jesus, though. Yeah, no, he does. Um, and I think even the book of Revelation is uh, its writers attempt to try to reconcile. I mean, every all the New Testament writers are having to reconcile the fact that the Messiah came, he got crucified. A resurrection happened, but the general resurrection did not happen. So there's kind of a theology for the in-between time. Paul has his version of what he does with it. John, the Gospel, has its version of what it does with it. And the book of Revelation is kind of reworking Daniel and Ezekiel to try to make sense of what this means. This delay of the of the day of judgment, and I think in the backdrop, you know, hell is a very important idea because you know we are the remnant. We're a small group against a world that's out of control. Um, if you and I lived in the Roman Empire, it would much it would be much easier for us to have an active doctrine of judgment because of the fact of the violence in. Inequality, I wouldn't oppression. have made
0: it. I wouldn't have even think about that. I would have probably I ju- I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have been a survivor back
1: then. Like it's just <laughs> it's a tougher time. I I've not made for time like that. Right. And where, you know, talk about the extreme of, of might is right. Uh these folks who came out of oppression, uh, if you're a slave, your master could do whatever they wanted to to you. And so this idea that someday there was going to be uh a time when all these people who live by violence and greed I'm starving to death, my children are starving to death, and the rich are having feasts where they have to throw up because they've eaten too much. You, you look for a day when something was going to be made right. If there's a God in heaven, then someday God has to deal with this. And so the doctrine of hell in that time period, or whenever you're a persecuted minority, I think is, is, a, is a hook you hold on to um, to say that someday something has to be done about all this injustice and evil. But you were saying, too, that it's not the only time hell becomes a pretty important doctrine. Yeah, I think, uh, and I hate using this term, but when Christianity is in a dominant... I was going to use Christendom, but I'm not going to. Christendom. Uh, Missional. Missional.
2: (laughs) Constantine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but when when Christianity is in a situation where it has the responsibilities for social controls, and again, you know, we kind of, uh, all these folks who talk about how horrible um, Christendom was, I would like to remind them, if your church, a third of your church had been killed by the Roman Empire, you yourself were still feeling the effects of being tortured, and one day the new emperor came in and said, I'm going to support you, I want to hear about your God, Uh, I'm not only going to not persecute you anymore, but I want to help your faith flourish. You would not look at that as a bad thing.
0: When I was, uh, years ago, I was at the American Academy of Religion, and David Bentley Hart, who's a genius, writes for First Things. I think he's Eastern Orthodox, American guy, but is it
1: yeah, part is, of the Eastern he's, Orthodox? He's a great writer.
0: and Great thinker. his book, uh, The Beauty of the Infinite, is just a magisterial text. And there was a whole panel on it. And a woman who's a feminist scholar, you know, she had the first or second question, she said, aren't you bothered by the Constantinian undertones in your book? And he just said, I look at Constantine with ambivalence on one hand and nostalgia on the other. <laughs> and that's why Pat Hart doesn't have a teaching job.
1: <laughs> but it's a beautiful book. It is. Well, and so when you, have, um, when you have the need to kind of help enforce some social controls, when you are in one way or another a dominant force – whether we're talking about uh, Augustine's Hippo, or if we're talking about Puritan New England or Calvin's Geneva, um, there is a need to to say that there is uh, there is implications for you doing wrong, and it makes sense that uh, that is happening in eternity as well. So those biblical passages that are instead of a minority. Looking for the justice of God to finally come about, become the tools of a majority to kind of keep uh, the troops in line so basically if we're if if
0: the if the church is disempowered on the margins or has responsibility for being the chaplain of the world, that's where you start writing a lot about hell and thinking uh, about it and teaching so it and
1: preaching it and the other, the other place maybe that it comes really, and this is, I, I, as a kid, experienced this too, is if you believe that in evangelism it is your job, you know, this goes back to Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening, but if it's up to you to persuade someone to come to faith, okay, and therefore you can use whatever is in your arsenal to try to move people to make that decision. <laughs> I love the your arsenal. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm it's like, it's like, it's I want well, no, I mean I grew I, I grew Inquisition. up I grew up when you pulled out hell, the fear of hell, and all those really gory talks about the Antichrist, they were often short term effective tools in getting someone to come forward to that altar. So I'm not saying it lasted. I don't think it did, but uh, it certainly was something that the evangelist would pull out of his or her pocket. Gets, mostly him. Mostly, him. mostly, almost always him. Yeah.
0: So, should we get rid of it? Like, is, have we outgrown this, or what? What's our today? We're gonna we're coming down with a. This is like a white paper. We're, you know,
1: <laughs> we're coming down with a position. Well, actually, uh, it may be it may be the most important doctrine when um, most people don't believe in it. That, that may be a, a really good reason to it. To you know what's going to
0: get people believing in it? Monsanto. <laughs> Do you know in California, they couldn't pass a law to make it, it, it mandatory for on the shelves to just know if your food was genetically modified or not. They have this in liberal places like Russia and China. <laughs> <laughs> but in
1: California,
0: Monsanto <laughs> blocked that law. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that, that'll get people back into help. There we go.
1: So this uh, discussion that we had over the weekend, we we also, we don't, we do talk about pretty, we talk about light stuff occasionally. Yes, we talk about a lot of light stuff. Uh, but uh, this reminds you of uh, an essay by George Hunzinger. George
0: Hunsinger, uh, Princeton Seminary, who in a book called Disruptive Grace, which is uh, s- subtitled Studies in the Theology of Karl Barth. George is a fan of the topology. And again, let's, just admit right off the bat that any time you use topologies, people don't fit the type, it can be sloppy, but we got to get a gestalt of the thing, the shape of it just to make sense right. of it. So he thinks there's four positions, at least in the Western church. There's a majority report, 4th century St. Augustine, that the fate of those who are not saved, who are not part of the, those who are redeemed by God in Christ, is eternal damnation.
1: Which seems to be a pretty literal read uh, of the text. For somebody who was a master allegorical interpreter, that's a pretty literal read of um, passages in Jesus and and certainly some of the aspects which we read in, in Revelation and such. And there's a part in the City
0: of God where Augustine says, if you think that you couldn't have eternal flesh burning, I think he says that he saw or one of his friends saw somebody in Algeria roast a duck for three days. And so if that's possible in this world, <laughs> there's also a place in the city of God oh. where he says that if you don't believe in like the giants, like the Nephilim, that his buddy in Corsica saw a giant's footprint. <laughs> Sometimes he seems to resort in the city of God to drunk. My buddy saw it.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's comforting to know that one of the greatest minds that ever lived uses the same stupid stuff we do every day. Exactly. <laughs> that's funny.
0: Yes. But yeah, I do think it, it's not, uh, it's not uh, bereft of textual uh, justification in at least the New Testament.
1: Yeah, and, and again, it's funny, and you said this earlier, that a lot of times people say, well, we like Jesus, but we don't like Paul. Well, the Jesus you like is through the lenses of the doctrine of grace of the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted a, a,
0: an understanding of universal redemption, you wouldn't. Y- your best bet would be Paul. You wouldn't. You, you're, there's not a lot of that in in the words of Jesus. No, in the actions, and life,
1: and story of Jesus. That's a different issue. But uh, but his words of judgment fit very much into uh, the milieu of of uh, sheep and goats. There's the Dave at the. Living and the dead will be raised, and some will be the just, and the unjust will be judged. There seems to be an eternally bifurcated anthropology. There we go.
0: Now, Hansinger thinks one of the minority reports is Irenaeus. Right. And remind us who Irenaeus Second century, uh, he was Bishop of Lyons, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And he actually, uh, he's probably the person that has influenced many of you, if those of you who are Christian in the way you think. Without you even knowing anything about him, he really, he really was a pivotal second figure. Seventh, I'm sorry, second century figure.
0: Yeah, I mean, huge in combating the Gnostic heresies. Yeah. Wrote a book against heresies.
1: Matter of fact, if you sing the Gloria Patre
0: uh, every Sunday, you can thank
1: Irenaeus for that.
0: That's a difficult, not for the arrangement, because the di- arrangement is incredibly difficult. But for <laughs> the sentiment and the inspiration, right. yeah. No, and uh, the argument. No, this is. Uh, this is uh, Does Hansinger use Irenaeus in the thing? I, I might be imputing that to Hansinger, because I think he he talks about John Stott, and I know other evangelicals have said Irenaeus, but John Stott is famous for at least giving lip service to the idea that uh, there is no hell. There's annihilation for the unrighteous. So basically, if you think of uh, the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, right. and it, he goes crazy at the end, and he... Fuses with the teleport pod and the fly and his own DNA, and he goes to his lover which is Gina Davis, I think, and she has a gun, and looks up and puts the gun at his own head and right. says, "Please shoot me." Like so, th- this idea that kind of for th- for the unrepentant, the unredeemed soul, that sometimes the best imagination could provide is putting you out of your misery.
1: Well, yeah, and and see, you could almost get some of that from C.S. Lewis and some other Neoplatonic. Christianity, that in some levels, you know, if God is the reality, I mean, if, if all of existence is based in the reality of God, you know, you might just eventually fade away, you know, <laughs> that happens in the Great Divorce, and uh, and that if, you know, if, I mean, the ultimate denial of reality and the embracing of non-existence would be a failure to recognize the living God. And I guess this position, it's, I mean,
0: the people that advocate it, Generally are people that take the Bible pretty seriously. I mean, it's generally not from uh, the liberal wing of, of the church. It's, it's generally traditionalists who want to take seriously the, the Bible, but you know, Augustine seems it's, it's strong medicine. I mean,
1: they <laughs> kind of want to water that down. I'll have Augustine on the rocks. <laughs> no, he drank his, his whiskey straight. Yeah. So this idea that, again, annihilate that there is a point where the person who never received Christ or acknowledged God as God would just cease to exist.
0: Yeah, and then the third view Hunzinger identifies is uh, a, a purgatorial view of hell. Like now, we think, you know, in the Middle Ages, you had to be a real SOB to go to hell. Most people uh, spent a lot of time in purgatory or a little time in purgatory. So purgatory was this place where you know, you were made ready for the redeemed life. So Hansinger thinks in the in the East. I think he cites Gregory of Nyssa for this. That that hell is a thing that is really meant to be uh, an idealized version of the prison system. Mm-hmm. Where you know, it's funny because I just heard a story. Uh, Michael Moore just came out with a documentary called "Who Should We Invade Next," and he thinks that we should invade Europe because they've taken all our ideas. Like, all these European countries, well, universal health care, universal education, like, they're all doing things that we were, they, he talks, we are inspired by American values. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, they have such a low recidivism rate right. in Sweden or Norway, Sweden, I think. And he talks to a warden, and they have no death penalty and no life imprisonment. So his, uh, he, he says to the inmates, you could very well be my neighbor someday, so I'm really invested and your redemption. They also have less
1: economic inequality.
0: That's true, and they have IKEA. Yeah,
1: there we go.
0: But you know, uh, I love the hot dogs there. But uh, I think, but that's in some sense like this view that hell, and you see it in C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, that there's not a fixed divide between right. uh, the perdition and the promise of redemption. I
1: think there's a there's a line in that in that book. I haven't read it for a while, where you know is the shadow land down there, is that hell or purgatory? And I think the response, well, it depends. You know, if you the, if you as a citizen of purgatory decide to stay in heaven, you know, then it was purgatory. But people like Napoleon and others who are down there, uh, you get a sense that they're never going to make it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Donald Blesch, the late evangelical theologian who, uh, I still think, you know, if people just want a primer, on, a, on an array of topics in theology. His Essentials of Evangelical Theology, volume one and two, is very accessible. It is a, He's got a great mastery of the sources, but it is a very accessible uh, uh, introduction to systematic theology. And his he has a variation on this idea where he sees that uh, hell slash purgatory would be kind of like a spiritual psychiatric ward. Because even after you die, if you're still denying that God is God, uh, it's it's a kind of uh, spiritual schizophrenia, a spiritual, extreme spiritual denial of reality. Uh and so that you're in this kind of state where you know he wants to open up the possibility that someday you could actually come to your come to your senses. You know, you, there's, there's kind of a, the image of in Dante's Inferno. You know, Satan Satan's punishment is that he's frozen upside down. You know, and, and it isn't a lake of fire. It's a lake of ice that, that is kept frozen by Satan's own frustration. He's upside down, and he keeps the lake frozen because he keeps beating his wings because he doesn't like the way the world is because he's looking at it upside down. To me, that's a kind of uh, uh, you know. You can say, "Well, that's morally the you know the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, calling evil good and good evil," but it's also the most extreme denial of reality. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of Aristotelian.
0: It's like the further you get away from the center and source of all things, the the
1: more you decay. Right. You know, in Dorothy Sayers, and I can't remember where this note is, but uh, it's it's somewhere in the Penguin Classics version of, of. the Divine Comedy, uh, edited by Dorothy Sayers, and I again, I highly recommend it. Her, her notes or insights are amazing, but she makes the observation that the fire is all the same, that the fire in heaven is the love of God received. The fire in Purgatory is the love of God that's purging and disciplining, making you better, and that in hell it is the love of God that has been rejected. Mm. Now, I, I remember, uh, I, I, was, I never tolerated temper tantrums. In other words, I, I just didn't see, I mean, I knew they needed to get things out, but, you know, after a while, I didn't let them, they'd, I never, you know, I never reinforced it. But, you know, they throw themselves down on the ground, start baiting their head on the ground, which was always, to me, a little funny. I mean... I, I would almost, you know, even if they didn't understand such sensitivity and well, sentimentality. No. But it, but it's got this sit- is the parenting hour with billboard. I'm I'm sitting there and they're banging their head on the floor and I go, "You're trying to hurt me, but all you're doing is just banging your own head." And you know, I'm, and so I would scoop them up in my arms, and I would hold them tightly, not to hurt them, but to know that that I was stronger than them, and and that I was in charge. But it was it was it was a it was a grasp of love to prevent them from hurting themselves, and almost every time, perhaps every time, uh, they would be struggling. You know, they'd be angry and uh, and you know they'd be trying to get loose, and they'd be their 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 crying would be angry and frustrated. You know, and I think sometimes it's just you know life is frustrating. That's what you do when you're a toddler or a three-year-old. But then inevitably they would surrender. And they would, and the wrestling in my arms would become an embrace. And maybe the cries of anger would be the cries of kind of, of just, you know, being loved and gentleness. And, and I, I think, you know. You think I, that's what Trump did to Paul Ryan? He just held him.
0: Uh, like. See, <laughs> see, see. And you, you'll, you'll, you'll eventually see,
1: embrace you, you know what? I'm having this wonderful memory of, of parenthood. I mean. Yeah. Uh, and we
0: said we would not make Trump references, and we have violated it. Mostly me. Every episode after we've said it's overstated, and I can't help it. It's in it's a,
1: it's in the air and in the water. Um, but I think if I, as a father who is evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more does the Heavenly Father give to all his children? So, you know, I, I, I like this image of blesh or... Um, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Or some C.S. Of the Lewis yeah, those, those those are ones that I think I kind of drift toward. no I think I actually might
0: be fusing Hunzinger's essay with another book by David Powies who is a Australian evangelical Anglican author who wrote a great book on the same topic so I, if I'm fusing these apologies to George Hunzinger and to uh, David Powies but another Minari report is Universalism which started kind of with origin,
1: least some of origin speculations. Yes. Yeah,
0: ap- there's a Greek word apokatastasis, which is a great word. It's uh, the reconciliation of all things, bringing so
1: bringing it all back.
0: Exactly. So it's uh, the all things you could find this in places like Colossians, all things we reconcile, or you know, God in Romans, Paul says he's constrained all over to disobedience that he could have mercy on all. And Calvinists are great at saying, well.
1: The New Testament, we take it literally, except when it says "all," which always means some, <laughs> right? Or God is willing that none should perish. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, in Philippians too, it says every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess. Now, that doesn't that doesn't assume uh, that everybody is in. I mean, you it may be some are some are kneeling out of devotion, and some are, you know, kneeling out of compulsion. But I. Uh, Nonetheless, there is there is certainly a universe down. You know, according to Paul, there is a universal recognition of God being God, and uh, what what that means, we we really don't. And know. And Miroslav Volf says, I think I forget where it is, but he one of his books. He says, "I'm
0: not a universalist, but I hope God is." And yeah. I think if you don't have some sympathy with that sentiment, you're just not human. I mean, like it, it, like it on some level. I think uh, at least on a day where you're not thinking of somebody that's victimized you severely or something, but if you, know, in a calmer moment,
1: we all like, we want to hope the best. Right. Right. And I think though, if you're not, if that isn't somehow tempered uh, by gas chambers and by uh, people who put um, bombs in children and A Monsanto and corp and uh, corporations that knowingly dump uh, carcinogens into the water supplies that eventually kills kids and people. Uh, if you don't somehow think that those folks someday have to to reckon for that, and to some levels, if you don't if you don't on one level see that your own sins deserve some sort of of justice, then you probably don't love the grace of God enough. I mean, Jesus uh, tells Simon the Pharisee, you know, in that beautiful passage in Luke 7, I think it is, uh, where the sinful woman anoints his uh, feet, uh, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. You know, I can remember a professor at Princeton, who remained nameless, um, gave a talk on universalism, um, and, uh, you know, talked about it for a couple of weeks. And then a couple of weeks later was, you know, decrying the fact that, you know, uh, there's no passion for evangelism anymore. We don't work at, you know, our churches, our pastors don't seem to want to reach out to, to, to reach, you know, people that are outside the church, you know, with the gospel. And I said, well, you know, with all due respect, professor, why should we given what you told us two weeks ago? And, and you know, that's, that's one issue, but I think the, the, the greater issue is when we think we deserve the grace of God. In other words, sometimes universalism can just be an extension of saying, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I can't imagine God judging me, you know, so I want to be generous with other people. But I, I think there is, you know, an unintended consequence of offering grace so freely that it becomes grace offered cheaply. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think there's wisdom to that. And
0: Hunsinger's last position in, in this essay, this is definitely not Powies, this is Hunzinger. so making distinctions here, uh, is a, a view that he attributes to Maximus the Confessor. Century is six, six? Uh, seventh. Seventh? Or eighth. Mm-hmm. Seven and eighth, yeah, I think. Seven and eighth tells you who's this story in here. Uh, I, if it's single digits, I consider myself like, you know, yeah, it's like horseshoes good. and hand grenades. Uh, and he also attributes to Karl Barth, and this is holy silence, that, you know, Bart. Uh, Bart's theology in particular seems to brush up against universalism. I mean, he really thinks that there aren't two types of people, that there are only one type of people, the people that are in Christ. Now, Bart also thinks that, in the mystery of the way that the story of history and redemption work out, there may be people that are permitted to eternally reject their election, that some people might want to drink sewer water rather than wine for eternity. But he won't say that's definite and he won't say, uh, you know, that it's, you know, like basically he thinks uh, he'll be surprised, he's sure, at the way things end up. And hopefully, I think, Bart wants to be pleasantly surprised. But that the New Testament, as a witness, is is he wants to take the whole thing seriously. And to teach universalism would be to bind the freedom of God. And to deny it would be to also bind the freedom of God, that, that, that God is free and mysterious, and that things could wind up in many number of, of ways at the end of time.
1: You know, it also may be also to diminish... The wonderful, awful dignity of humanity that God's created. I mean, we were created; we are created as uh, free will beings. But that freedom—you know—we often talk about freedom to choose, but it really is around the freedom to love. And God can't help but love because that's who God is. But it seems that that God, from the beginning created us in order that we could freely choose to love God. And for me, part of whatever, you know, whatever I see hell as being, there's still part of me that doesn't think God would force someone to be there who doesn't want to be there.
0: Yeah. I think that that's the mystery of like, uh, yeah, of the tradition because we want to say in some sense our wills are bound until God liberates them. And yet, uh, we know that in our own broken freedom, we always want to choose the wrong thing.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a mystery because, you know, it's kind of, we don't know enough to choose the good. And that I do believe our salvation is solely a gift and by the grace of God. Um, sometimes I have trouble reconciling how freedom and love works and all that. Hans von Balthazar, in a book called Dare We Hope
0: That All Men Be Saved, which I'd commend it. Everyone listening to this book, it's a, it's a wonderful book. But he says, you know, there's only one person we can be sure who's been to hell. Right. And that's Jesus. Right. And yeah. it's a Christological, if hell is really death and God abandonment, uh, that there's only one that we know that has been there, and that's Christ. And we hope no one else has to be.
1: Now, you and I, I don't want to get off in the Lutheran Calvinist uh, divide here. But if the if hypostatic union of the, of the God and human is never severed, then if Christ went to hell...
0: Then God's been to hell, too. Yeah. And hopefully he can deliver us all from it.
1: Amen.
2: You never thought you'd hear Dylan with an Irish accent, did you? Oh, the time will come up... When the winds will stop, and the breeze will cease to be breathing, like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins, the hour that the ship comes in, and the seas will sing. they'll be smiling and the rocks on the sand will proudly stand the hour that the ship comes in and the words that are used for to get the ship unused will not be understood as they're spoken chains of the sea will have busted in the night and be buried on the bottom of the ocean. And the song will lift as the mainsail ships and the boat drifts on to the shoreline and the sun will respect